From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. My name's Nathan Kearney, and today we delve into what has been pretty unfairly described as one of the worst decades for music ever, the 80s. We look at the growth in the career of brooding songsman Nick Cave, of the battle to play a more diverse array of female artists on air, fought and won by 4ZZZ, the rise of missionary musicians and charity concerts, and the growth in popularity of world music. First, one of our modern homegrown rock heroes, Nick Cave. There are though, a lot of kind of myths on, on the album, or what seem to be you know, mythological stories. Does that interest you? That, that there are some on the record. Yeah. Um, well, no, not really. I mean, it doesn't interest me that there are some... Um, well, I mean... I mean, this, there was no kind of concept towards the making of that record anyway. Um, it, it, if it comes across as having uh, certain themes running through it or certain concepts running through it um, that are similar to one another, um, and that's quite accidental. It's just um, it would just indicate um, perhaps uh, some of the influences that were that were touching me at the time. And were those what were those influences? Um, well, I can't really remember. Right, books I mean, I or movies. I don't want to, to go into that particularly. Okay. Are you going to stick with the same kind of thing that's been on the last two albums? Um, do you think there's a similar uh, sort of thing on, on, on the last two albums? Oh, I think, yeah, there seems to me to be uh, similar themes and, and treated similarly. Uh, well, um, I would hope the next record um, would dash that to pieces. Um, now that's always been a worry for me that we would paint ourselves into any, uh, into a corner. And do you expect to have the same musicians with you? Yes. Yes, I do. That's Mick Harvey and Pixar Bargeld and uh, Barry Adamson. They've been backing you... Thomas Sorry? And Thomas Weidler on drums. They've been with you quite a while now. Um, well, I've been playing with them on the last two records. Um, but I've known them for longer. Nearly everyone in the bad seats um, uh, is involved in another group, or in a way uh, has a first priority with another group, such as Noy Barton or Crime in the City Solution or De Hout. Do you find that uh, the kind of persona that comes across on the albums is quite often confused with um, Nick Cave, the person? Um, 
confused about it, no. But do you think that there is a, a kind of a confusion in people's minds when they when they hear the album and they see the video clips or whatever? Um, no, I don't think so. Do you? It seems to me that, yeah, there probably could, could be because you project a particular kind of image through the lyrics and... Well, I don't mean to do that. And I'm, uh, I apologise if any, cre any confusion has been created. Um, um, I just uh, try to make what I'm writing about um, as true to myself as possible. Well, what I mean by that is that lyrics are always, you know, very, uh, well, gloomy in a way, but, uh, you know, preoccupied with certain kinds of things like death or misfortune, those sorts of things, and, and that people might expect that from you as a person. Um, expect death from me? Well, you know, that kind of person who goes around... All deathy and shrouded and that kind of stuff. I mean, surely you must, that must, um, you must feel other people expecting that from you. Um, well, well perhaps, perhaps, but, um, uh, I'm fairly insensitive to the way other people feel, full stop. So, I would be um, insulted to for anyone to think that there were ever any theatrics about any of it. I mean, it, um, it's all been from the heart, as far as I'm concerned, and and hasn't been a situation. You know, um, I don't. I wouldn't uh, call myself an actor, and, and um, I would find it unfortunate if other people thought I was. Nick Cave took many years to get over the sense that rock music was among the lower forms of creative endeavour. In 1985, when the interview you just heard was first aired on 4ZZZ, he was quite evidently of the view that music journalists were among the lower forms of life. Nick Cave was, like many musicians of his time, an expat. He grew up in a middle-class family, the son of a teacher and a librarian. Cave attended art school before emerging as an angry young man in Melbourne's post-punk scene as lead singer of The Birthday Party, who made a successful career in Britain and Europe in the early 1980s. The gaunt, dark-haired cave subsequently moved to Berlin, which was still two cities at the time. Although he was the product of a country fond of thinking itself secular, Cave's vision was essentially religious, infused with biblical and apocalyptic imagery and concerned with the grand themes of love, sex, suffering, death and evil. In this, Cave had as much in common with older Australian artists and thinkers, including Patrick White, Arthur Boyd or Manning Clark, as he did with the obvious influences of his career, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen and Neil Young. The opening track of his 1988 album, Tender Prey, The Mercy Seat, is a religious meditation of the Old Testament justice, placed side by side with the merciful figure of Christ the Carpenter, crucified like some ragged stranger. In this terrifying account of a man facing the electric chair, Cave's raw vocals bring out in full force the song's haunting lyrics. When Tender Prey was released to critical acclaim, Cave was in rehab. I began to warm and chill The objects on their fields A ragged cup, twisted mark 
Scavenger and the Scammer. Cave was a leading member of Berlin's artistic and bohemian underground as he forged a career as frontman for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. But like those of bohemians in other times and places, Cave's career aspirations were of the usual kind. Recognition, success, that sort of thing. There would be plenty of that sort of thing to come, even if many of those in awe of Cave's talent expected that his chaotic life would end in a heroin overdose. It didn't. It led to music that made a little bit of history every time it comes on air. Come sail your ships around me And burn your bridges down Come loose your dogs 
on me And let your hair hang down You are a little mystery to me Every time you call around We talk about it all night long We define our moral ground But when I crawl into your arms Everything, it comes tumbling down Come sail your ships around me With the soft serenade of Nick Cave filling our sails, we make our way to a new port. From angry young male frontmen to upstart female artists, we now look at the controversies and triumphs the 1980s had in store for women in the music biz. And we examine the ever-changing issue of obscene language in music and the ongoing struggle for independent artists to stay independent. Despite the rise of the women's liberation movement in the 1970s, the music industry in the 1980s was notoriously dominated by the male gender. However, women made waves on the airwaves in some memorable ways. While Björk, Annie Lennox, Tori Amos, PJ Harvey and others were filling our headphones with the sounds and views of female musicians, community radio supported women's politics and music with programming like the long-running Megahers and Dykes and Mikes and 4ZZZ, who introduced a female content quota. Women's voices like Marianne Faithful were annoying Australia's tight-laced conservative censors. In 1981, 4ZZZ became the target of a series of complaints to the Broadcasting Tribunal over the playing of a faithful song and for the use of colourful slang commonly used in the public domain, but offensive to the Christian listeners who only listened in order to complain. Faithful's Why Did You Do It was found unacceptable for public consumption by censors for its raw female emotion. While well, another complaint to the censors over a Triple Z program entitled The Penis was found acceptable after a panel of psychologists deemed it educational and of dry academic style. Faithful's album Broken English, in an extreme act of censorship, had the song in question replaced with smooth vinyl, 
on the record's release in Australia in 1979. The uncensored album wasn't available in Australia for another nine years. Despite this setback, women's voices became gradually louder and more popular in a succession of internationally popular acts around the world. Get your dancing shoes on, because we're about to do some interpretive dance. Wait a minute, wouldn't you be taking off your shoes for that? question. Why are you wearing rubber trousers? <laughs> well, they're not quite rubber. They're, I think there's some kind of nylon. And the idea, as with leg warmers, you wear them to keep your muscles warm, because when you work your muscles, you can pull them much easily. And uh, just things can go wrong easier, because uh, you're working them. So to keep them warm... So they're not sort of sweat and lose weight? No, it keeps your muscles loose all the time, so you're less likely to pull or damage yourself. You see, I dance because I want to dance, not because I want to keep fit. And uh, it's just a sort of side thing that I happen to keep fit at the same time. I, I really like what I do, and I think, I think that's what it's all about. Depending on when and where you were born, you may know Kate Bush as the founder of the School of Eccentric Female Singer-Songwriters who came to prominence during the 1980s. Since the 1970s, Bush has been singing with a wild voice in melodies that only make sense when you submit to them and dancing, of course, expressively. Bush first came to note in 1978, when at the age of 19, she became the first female artist to achieve a UK number one with a self-written song about a 19th century novel, Wuthering Heights. Like many female musicians who built their careers in the 1980s, Kate Bush had a powerful stage presence and a sensibility all of her own. Her songs discussed issues that the Australian censors, had they realised, may have found unacceptable such as female masturbation, Nazi center experiments, ghosts of literary works, and of course, heartbreak. In the 1980s as today, 
music publicists can err on the side of predictability. Kate Bush's first recording label, EMI, capitalised on her appearance by promoting the album with a poster of her in a tight pink top that emphasised her breasts. In an interview with NME magazine in 1982, Bush criticised the marketing technique, saying, People weren't even generally aware that I wrote my own songs or played the piano. The media just promoted me as a female body. It's like I had to prove that I'm an artist in a female body. Kate Bush was not the first or the last woman of talent to have to put up with a lack of imagination on the part of her music industry minders. And like many other women who took to the microphone around this time, Bush had an attitude that was not meek, restrained, conflicted or apologetic. Assertive women were making anthems for the disenfranchised female gender, shoulder pads and all, and Blondie was at the forefront with her post-punk pop crossover sound. Those were the singers, that was New York, you just heard Blondie, one way or another, and then Nico and the Velvet Underground with These Days. In the 1980s, the Oz rock of the 1970s and the impression that every Australian band found it necessary to belt out their songs like Akadaka and Cold Chisel did, gave way to a wider spectrum of music, as the influence of post-punk, new wave, funk, hip-hop, ska and much else reshaped popular taste. One measure of change was that the white male-dominated pub rock culture was becoming a little less so, with the mainstream success of some Aboriginal singers and groups such as Yossi Yendi and the prominence of the strong female leads in Australian bands like the Eurogliders, I'm Talking and the Divinals.
Although less controversial than Christina Amphlett of the Dividals, there's no talking about the history of Aussie girls on the mic in the 1980s without talking about Kylie Minogue, who began her career as an actress in the soap opera Neighbours, moved on to be a queer icon and sex symbol simultaneously, and whose lyrics have matured with time. That's Kylie Minogue, and you're listening to Radio in Colour, a documentary series to celebrate 4ZZZ's 40th birthday. This is Candle 8 on the Cake, a music special in the 1980s. We now look at a contrast of types. The modern rock star is something of a masculine icon, hedonistic and suave. He does what he wants when he wants, to whom he wants, and usually to excess. But as you know, the world isn't that simple. Not everyone can be the Lizard King. Here we present a study of two very different rock stars of the 1980s, voiced here by our very own music maven, Chris Cobcroft. Michael Hutchins emerged in the mid-1980s as In Excess's most popular and recognisable figure. He departed not at all from existing scripts governing the behaviour of male rock stars of the vaguely arty and philosophical type angst, drugs, booze, sex, a succession of beautiful girlfriends and a dash of the brooding poet and intellectual, the latter courtesy of Cahill Gilbran and Herman Hesse. Indebted to the example of The Doors' Jim Morrison for his image of intellectuality and to The Rolling Stones' Mick Jagger for his uncanny ability to draw attention to his groin, Hutchins was, in many respects, a liminal, contradictory figure, perfectly matched to an era in which, as the cross-dressing English singer Boy George showed, there were rewards to be had for carefully tended ambiguity. Mesmerising in his effect on women, he was a little androgynous with shoulder-length wavy hair, a slightly pimply and pockmarked face, and a mild lisp. Tall and lithe, even cat-like, and exuding a legendary sexual confidence, he was also shy and far removed from ochre masculinity. The least determinedly Australian member of In Excess spent his childhood and youth in Hong Kong and Los Angeles, as well as Brisbane and Sydney. It would be hard to imagine a young performer better prepared by his upbringing than Hutchins to make his way as an Australian in a global popular culture. In Excess's international orientation belonged to the new wave, a more musically sophisticated evolution of punk that gained a global ascendancy over popular music in the 1980s. Their hit albums of the mid-1980s, Listen Like Thieves, 1985, and especially Kick, 1987, turned them into global superstars. Kick reached number three on the American charts and sold about nine million copies. New Sensation, Devil Inside, Need You Tonight and the romantic ballad Never Tear Us Apart became the style most associated with In Excess and through repetition on radio ever since, among the most recognisable sounds of Australian music in the 1980s. You're tuned to a special about the music of the 1980s. This is Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate 40 years of 4ZZZ. We've been looking at Michael Hutchins, one of Australia's best-known examples of the 1980s rock star, featuring torment, sex appeal and big hair. But what about the reverse? Were all rock stars hedonists in a decade known for excess? As it turns out, the answer is no. Bob Geldof is in many ways, private and public, the opposite of Hutchins. 
Geldof was, in a sense, the pioneer of a new breed of celebrity missionaries with his efforts to end the Ethiopian famine. Yet, as some have noted, his efforts weren't without consequences. Live Aid, which brought a star-studded array of musical talent to the homes of 1.9 billion people across 150 countries, raised an estimated £40 million sterling. However, as American journalist David Riff noted, Live Aid's donations to NGOs like Oxfam and Save the Children also facilitated the displacement of 600,000 people by the Mengistu regime, resulting in an estimated 100,000 deaths. For over 30 years, a favourite phrase of activists like Geldof has been to wake people up to what is really going on. Those who bemoan what they see as the selfishness and self-absorption of the rich world often point to Band-Aid, which raised between 50 million and 70 million pounds sterling as a sign of how compassion fatigue can be beaten. In the words of one aid worker, humanitarian concern is now at the centre of foreign policy. Bob Geldof deserves a lot of credit for that. No one really knows how many people died in the Ethiopian famine of the mid-80s. Estimates run from 300,000 to as many as 1 million. The roots of this great hunger dated back to the 1970s, but over the course of a decade, despite warnings from aid groups about the magnitude of the disaster, Ethiopia remained a forgotten crisis. Calls for assistance fell on deaf ears until Michael Burke's famous report and the Band-Aid Live Aid efforts that followed. At that point, at least as NGOs such as Oxfam understand the history, the logjam preventing relief from getting through was broken. For Oxfam and Geldof, there was no political dimension to the famine. Burke's original report had spoken of the famine as biblical. The hunger was thus an affliction, the result of age-old poverty and of a drought that was the product of nature, not human beings. There, the famine was the product of three elements, only one of which could be described as natural, a two-year drought across the Sahel sub-region. The other two factors were entirely man-made. The first was the dislocation imposed by the wars waged by the government in Addis Ababa against both Eritrean guerrillas and the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. The second was the forced agricultural collectivization policy ruthlessly pursued by Mengistu Haile Mariam and his colleagues in the Derg. This collectivization was every bit the equal in its radicalism of the policy Stalin pursued in Ukraine in the 1930s. The inevitable result in both cases was famine. It was this policy that Western aid would unwittingly assist, even as it saved lives. Having tried without great success to run aid efforts directly, the organizers of Band Aid and Live Aid channeled millions to the NGOs in Ethiopia. The NGOs welcomed the money, not least because it came without the strings imposed by Western donor governments. Indeed, Oxfam used some of these funds to run covert supplies to rebel-controlled areas, though officially no major NGO sent food aid to rebel-held territory. This 
The truth is the Derg's resettlement policy of moving 600,000 people from the north while enforcing the villagization of 3 million others was at least in part a military campaign, masquerading as a humanitarian effort, and it was assisted by Western aid money. To this day, Oxfam has not officially retracted its policy of working with the Derg. The most it has ever been willing to do has been to speak out against the haste, scale and timing of the resettlement. Of all the NGOs, only the founding French section of Médecins Sans Frontières refused to go along with the pro-Derg consensus. Once expelled from Ethiopia, MSF was free to talk about what it knew about the forced deportations. Quote, we are witnessing the biggest deportation since the Khmer Rouge genocide, said MSF's president Claude Malhouré in late 1985. For MSF, the decision of aid agencies, UN institutions and donor governments to help a totalitarian project like the Ethiopian Resettlement Program was an exercise in deadly compassion. As Claude Malhouré put it, Ethiopia demonstrated that it had become imperative to clarify the complex relations that humanitarian action forms with a totalitarian regime, to mark out the indistinct but very real limit beyond which aid to victims was unwittingly transformed into support for their executioners. With the exception of MSF, what neither the Relief World nor the UN nor Geldof have ever come to terms with is that the Mengistu regime also committed mass murder in the resettlement program using Live Aid money. Three decades after Live Aid, it's clear that celebrity efforts to save Africa have often done more to reinforce negative media stereotypes about the dark continent and to portray its one billion citizens as helpless victims who must be shouldered as a new white man's burden. Often, naive celebrities have burnished their reputations as new missionaries in a troubled age. Geldof and Bono are seeking to end poverty. George Clooney is saving Darfur. Madonna has adopted children in Malawi as if buying new pets, while Prince Harry is on his way to Namibia to save the black rhino. Amid the new missionary age spawned by Live Aid, it is important to remember that Africa is a diverse continent of 55 countries who are capable of taking care of their own affairs. We move away now from the rock star dichotomy to take a broader view of music. While battles for independence were being won by some and wars against poverty were being waged by others, a gradual expansion of consciousness was taking place. No, we're not talking about expansion of the psychotropic kind. We're talking about a growth of musical awareness, a recognition that there's a whole world of sound out there and the story of those who decided to bring it to us. Today in Radio in Colour, we discuss some of the specialty music shows that have come to be part of the 4ZZZ grid over the last 40 years. Perhaps one of the most long-standing of these shows has been World Beat. And today we welcome into the studio Rick Heritage, who is the host of World Beat. Well, I'm the host along with um, Gary Williams sometimes, and prior to that, Jonathan Mitchley was a member of the group. I've only been with uh, World Beat since 1998, so... Only been with World Beat. <laughs> <laughs> it started a little early, I think around about 95, 96, as a uh, temporary program on the grid. But, uh, it has changed over the years, but um, with Jonathan's taste in uh, things Gothic, as well as the uh, traditional and contemporary uh, Celtic and English folk traditions, and uh, Gary Williams with his uh, taste in a lot of the uh, North European and Southern European music, particularly Rambetica, uh, from Greece, I bought a uh, very exotic <laughs> formula to the program from 1998. 
I guess a sunnier one as well, hey? Because the music <laughs> invariably has, you know, this sort of warm climbs, nice drum beat to it. I guess uh, this thing called world music can mean a lot and nothing in both measures to people. Maybe you can tell us more about um, this term then of world music and how you sort of see it coming and how it defines your musical tastes. Well, uh, ethnomusicologists could uh, argue that they used it as a way of differentiating between popular music from around the world and the ethnomusicology i.e. the field recordings that a lot of uh, academics were, were recording and, uh, and utilising for their own libraries over the century. But uh, the birth of world music uh, can go back to, I guess, around about 1982-83 when British and American promoters and uh, record companies, as well as uh, stores, big stores like Virgin and HMV, um, were um, looking at ways to promote music from other countries, especially African music because at the time the Ireland record label had a huge hit with a, um, a, uh, an American, a Nigerian um, band leader called King Sonny Ade uh, with two big huge hits that he had. So um, <clears throat> I guess the interest was sort of piqued uh, by what else was in Africa. <laughs> The record company started uh, beginning in a small way, particularly in uh, Britain and the, the and United States with uh, Britain between 83 and 86 um, opening up labels like Hannibal, Stern's Africa, World Circuit and later on Peter Gabriel's label uh, Real World Records. But uh, the recognition of world music um, came in 1990 when um, the Billboard uh, charts introduced a uh, world music chart and then of course the Grammys introduced a uh, world music album category as well and of course it's gone on to the uh, Latin Grammys and all of the different uh, genres of music so as you say wherever you are situated in the world the term world music can mean something completely different to you than it does to us here. That's right and I guess that has to do with a certain perception of exoticism we were talking before about um, indigenous music perhaps you can tell us a bit more. Well for a while before people like uh, Yothi Indi um, uh, came to the fore and became re renowned internationally. We had people like the Warumpi Band and others who were Australian groups that, um, you know, were from an indigenous uh, background. But um, if you were to uh, look back at Australia from the UK or even through Europe, you would see indigenous music from Australia as being world music from Australia. Here in Australia, we see the influence of all the peoples in this multicultural society contributing to this incredible fusion of music that a lot of um, even contemporary and mainstream music seem to uh, have as part of the norm. <laughs> Now. 
Well, all music is world music if you look at it that way. So uh, uh, for me, um, my particular uh, tastes in music started out with, um, I guess, the exotica of the 50s and 60s, the people... Um, People like uh, Arthur Lyman, Les Baxter, Perez, Prado, and uh, the great Yuma Sumac. Now, I don't know whether you know, but Yuma Sumac was a singer from uh, Peru who um, starred in a few Hollywood B-movies as the exotic temptress, uh, but she had this incredibly trained operatic voice. Her range was said to be four and a half octaves, and uh, she was thought to be a descendant of the Incan royalty in so much that uh, she had this exotic look about it but there's no one could argue about the quality of her voice she just had this incredible voice she brought out uh, quite a few albums a lot of it was inspired by the Andean sort of rhythms and uh, music uh, some of the traditional songs from a lot of the uh, surrounding countries but uh, and a lot of her music was used in uh, some of the b-grade movies that um, became so well known after the second world war we're going to have an example of uh, the great uh, Ima Sumek was Ima Sumac and now this is Rick Heritage with me in the studio discussing world music and 4ZZZ and beyond and we're talking today about influences and how world music influences local music and we're going to be talking about how world music influenced Rick Heritage. Well for me the African music scene as it was being revealed through the production houses in Paris and in um, London at the time saw some fantastic uh, music released. Ma- Manu Dibango had actually been releasing quite a bit of uh, music since the 70s and Manu Dibango um, was one of the influences of um, what became for me a uh, very eclectic taste. And also too, at the same time, I was listening to an incredible Afro rock band that uh, originally were from Ghana but all a station in London called Osibisa. An incredible artwork on their albums and uh, uh, they for me encapsulated the true extent and the incredible genre hopping that um, African traditional music can uh, uh, be so successful at. We call this the dawn. 
That was Asibisa, the dawn, who have been one of the uh, big influences on what constitutes world music for me. After the um, term world music was entrenched into musical programming and to the categorisation that big uh, record stores were uh, using the term for, became for me a uh, real insight into seeking out more, particularly when Salif Keita released his big single called uh, Sina. Sumbaya, which was off his big uh, first international album, Sorrow, that was uh, produced in uh, France, which has gone on to, I guess, produce some of the biggest uh, world music from Africa and elsewhere, and uh, has really um, nurtured and um, developed a lot of um, uh, music producers that come uh, from all over Africa. producer called Ibrahim Silla, who sadly passed away last year, but uh, he was responsible for reviving the careers of some of the great uh, griots. Now, they're the traditional praise singers from West African countries like um, Mali, uh, Guinea, even uh, Senegal and um, Côte d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast. Uh, A lot of those um, uh, countries come from a very ancient tradition of uh, storytelling uh, where um, music and and, uh, stories are passed down by the spoken word and uh, a lot of the uh, praise singers, which are what griots are known for, were actually part of the royal courts of uh, many of the kings that uh, inhabited those uh, areas long before uh, colonisation by French and some of the other big uh, colonial powers, you know, we're going back centuries. And a lot of these uh, uh, griots were praise singers and they would uh, sing the praise of their hosts and of course that's how they got paid. Uh, but that uh, has changed these years because there's no longer these these kings but there's still the chiefs and the tradition uh, still remains and there is a hereditary caste system in uh, West Africa of um, musicians and singers that hand down the knowledge of the griots from one generation to another. They say when a griot dies it's like a library burning down. I have to say that Salif Keita, his 
uh, hereditary uh, background is that he was part of the uh, kingship of uh, the Mande Empire. So as a uh, as a higher part of the um, um, Manding society, he was really forbidden to become a griot. There were rules uh, that required uh, singers that they come from a certain section of you know the uh, social hierarchy. He nevertheless is accepted and uh, probably remains to be one of the great voices of uh, West Africa, as is Yesuando, who comes from uh, Senegal, uh, Morikanto, who comes from uh, Guinea, and uh, Bambino, who also comes from Guinea. So they're the males, but the female griot singers, and there's been quite a few of them, some of which have sadly passed away just recently, have um, inspired a whole younger generation of um, of uh, griot uh, singers. Um, I guess uh, Rakia Traore and uh, Fatoumata Diawara, both from Mali, are two probably prime examples. Another singer that comes from the central part of uh, West Africa, or southern part of West Africa on the coast, and from uh, Benin, is of course the African diva herself. Angelique Kijo and Angelique's been here quite a lot and uh, she's taken the rhythms uh, her musical cultures and uh, taken them and, ex- and uh, reinvestigated their origins and uh, where they went to in uh, uh, to the new world in places like Haiti and Cuba and uh, Brazil and uh, rediscovering it so she's done a reverse uh, look at how the music of where she comes from has influenced the musical cultures of, uh, of other parts of the world. And it's really amazing to see this circular motion of uh, music that, um, uh, that originates in uh, Africa and West Africa in this instance uh, returning. interactions and uh, interplays of musical traditions whether they be uh, traditional in, and in some cases um, quite ancient have uh, come back to influence the uh, contemporary interpretations of music uh, all these wonderful parts of the world. And so in keeping with our 15% local quota who would you recommend maybe three of your best Brisbane world musicians? Well um, I'm a real supporter and lover of the uh, uh, influence that uh, people like uh, Tenzin Choigal, who a Tibetan folk singer, has had. Another uh, influential musician that uh, has had a lot to do with developing uh, the interest in uh, Eastern European music um, is um, Lindsay Pollock, who, although having studied in 
in Macedonia has really um, inspired a lot of uh, musicians to uh, take up uh, whatever woodwind instrument they play or brass instrument they play and uh, seek out the uh, joys of this incredible um, music of the uh, Rom or Gypsies from uh, all of the uh, Balkan East. Locally, there's uh, interpreters of African uh, dance uh, that often include reggae and dub as well. But um, I think uh, a lot of the uh, big names in the African music traditions that uh, are now residing here in Australia happen um, in um, Melbourne and Sydney. There are a few here that uh, are becoming um, better known. Mostly they're um, solo instrumentalists that... um, uh, collaborate and um, team up with um, uh, visiting musicians or other musicians and uh, thus this propensity for um, cross-pollination or um, <coughs> uh, crossovers. You can hear them quite often here on <laughs> on 4 Z and World Beat. history of music in the 1980s finished for today. You've been listening to episode 8 of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Brisbane's community broadcasting. We acknowledge the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Fund and our production partners, Brisbane Radio's 4EB 98.1 FM and 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, as well as the State Library of Queensland's The Edge, which teaches digital skills to Queenslanders of all walks of life. Learn something today visit edgeqld.org.au. The MDA, Multicultural Development Association, is also a partner in this project, and our thanks go to them as well. Radio in Colour is made by a team of young producers from 15 different countries, including Iran, Sudan, Uruguay, Syria, and Australia. You can learn more about our work on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au. This episode of Radio in Colour was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland, as well as radios 4EB and 4ZZZ. We would be lost without Brisbane's cultural institutions, which have made us all feel very welcome. This show was produced by Carolina Kaliaba and Stephen Regal. Nia Piobi is our sound engineer, and Blair Martin is our trainer. My name's Nathan Kearney. Special thanks to our guests today, 4ZZZ Music Department Coordinator Chris Cobcroft, as well as Rick Heritage, producer of World Beat on 4ZZZ and 4EB. Special thanks to Kim Stewart, who narrated our story about women's voices. You can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website. And you can also follow us on SoundCloud to hear us on the move. Soundcloud.com slash 4ZZZ documentary. Every time you come.